Hello everyone and welcome back to the BioConnect podcast. Today I will be talking with Bilal Kizilbosh about the intersection between medicine and business and his experience in founding his own company, EasyKale. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Hi Sanvi. Hi, how are you? Are you also of Desi origin like me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my dad is Pakistani. Uh, my mom was born in America. My mom's mom is from South Africa. And my mom's oh, wow. dad is from Egypt. That's cool. <laughs> my whole family's just from India. So if you're ready, could we get started? Alrighty. So my name is Bilal Kizabash, and I am the, well, I have a BS in biology from Stony Brook University and Master of Medical Sciences, as well as an MBA from Mississippi College. And I'm the CEO and science guy of Easy Kale Labs, where I'm continuously researching the cancer-fighting properties of kale, uh, while also offering the next generation product for making kale consumption easier through Bilal's Easy Kale. Um, I've also had the fortune to present lectures and leadership, innovation, and my team's cancer breakthrough at numerous conferences, most notably at the Global Health and Innovation Conference at Yale University, attended by over 2,000 people. Yeah, I think, like, when I first heard about Easy Kale, I was so interested and amazed at, like, how something as simple as kale can have so many different uses. So my first question for you is, how did you get the idea for Easy Kale, and why did you, like, decide to make this into a business? because uh, Easy Kill was kind of an accident. Um, so I mentioned that cancer-fighting properties. So back in 2013, we discovered that juice coli kale selectively kills melanoma cancer cells in vitro while not affecting non-cancerous cells. In fact, actually, I was afraid to show my professor for the first three months because I thought I was totally screwing up. Uh, and then when I realized we could do this reliably and and I, re- repeatedly, I showed it to her, and next thing you know, we got to go to the Global Health and Innovation Conference at Yale. Um, so while I was doing this uh, talks at over 16 scientific conferences, while many people considered the discovery to be super duper cool, the problem they had is they just didn't like the taste of kale. So that's when I started trying to figure out a way to make it easier for kale to be consumed. And in the very beginning, the very first version I made was six times the concentration and unfortunately six times the taste, which means that it was disgusting, even for me. But I thought people would take it along the lines of medicine, but I found out very quickly that people eat emotionally, and if it doesn't taste good, they have no interest in eating it for the most part. So I had a little bit of a crisis, and then by accident, uh, I eventually due to a sleep-deprived accident, truthfully, I ended up figuring out a way to remove the flavor profile of kale uh, while keeping the nutritional status and the nutritional qualities of it. Um, so after repeating it several times, I realized it was onto something and it became a big hit. And that's what eventually led to the development of Easy Kale. So I didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to develop Easy Kale. It kind of happened by accident, also guided by people telling us they hate the taste of kale and they hated the taste of my initial powder. no I think that's a really cool story especially about how like you know sometimes we don't even think that certain things can turn into a business or career but it can just happen so what do you think was yeah like what do you think is the most difficult and then what do you think is the most rewarding part of doing all of this well one of the most difficult is 
we're not really taught that how we can successfully transition into business because I can mm-hmm. see a lot of really great scientists doing some great work, um, really great scientists doing some really great work in, if they had the business acumen. So maybe if there was an inclusion of some general business courses so it wouldn't be that hard of a transition. The other thing is that what I've repeatedly seen is scientists do not know how to commercialize their discoveries. So they have this brilliant discovery, they have this brilliant um, idea and potential product, but they do not see the commercialization value and they focus primarily on academics, which also that model is shifting. I don't know if you're staying in uh, touch with that in terms of overall academics, they're shifting more to an innovation-based model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were asking if that was the most difficult. And the most rewarding aspect is being able to serve humanity. So to me, all the work that we do from the work that we do with EasyKill to our cancer research to um, feeding the needy and poor, for, we've been doing that. We're, actually, tomorrow is going to be a 7th year anniversary of feeding the homeless oh, in Jackson wow. every week. Um, so it enables you to do what your heart desires, and it really gives us a bigger platform to help others. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you mentioned that. Um a lot of scientists aren't really taught like the business side of things. So what are some skills that you found that you had that actually were transferable and could be used in a business setting? Uh, my critical thinking skills and my analytical skills give me a tremendous leg up on the competition. In fact, actually, it just happened yesterday in one of our business meetings where I was discussing um, some numbers and basically I was able to do the math very quickly in my head because mm-hmm. we're used to crunching numbers. We're not afraid of numbers. Um, the only ch- challenge I had personally was with accounting because of the arbitrary nature of how you label things. We're kind of taught, you know, like with the science, that's the whole reason why we have SI units is because we standardize things. Even though accounting does have standardized uh, measures, but at the same time, you could label something in advertising costs and then you could also label it as a business lunch or it could be labeled a couple of different things. The main thing is you have to, once you set it, you need to stay consistent with it. But dear God, that confused the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and just learning that my research expenditures were tax deductible and fell into a special tax category was a huge boon. That was like a massive bonus that I didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I wanted to transition more into like how specifically for you as like a minority student and person of color, how can, like in your experience, do you think minority uh, students or people in their careers can face barriers that are unique to the intersection of like STEM and business or just an intersectional discipline in general? Uh, Repeat that last part because it broke up, but I think I got your question. Yeah, so uh, my question was, do you think that there are any like barriers that minority students can face that are unique to intersection of STEM and business or even just like something interdisciplinary in general? So yes, there are unique challenges to STEM and business. I can get into that because I see that happen a lot. Um, But the first and foremost thing, just being a person of color, you're more dependent on financial aid than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I saw this repeatedly in my various programs that I was attending. Um, Minority students often have to wait for the financial aid, which usually puts them about two weeks behind in the class. So it got so bad because one year the financial aid was delayed almost up to a month. One of the professors personally rented the books and and photocopied it and gave it to the students because they couldn't afford to buy some of these texts. 
Now, in other um, study fields of study, the books are not nearly as expensive as some of the, the medical sciences books, for example, or the medical textbooks. They're $600 plus. So even if you wanted to go and take it on your credit card, not many students have that kind of credit card to be popping off six books at $600 a pop. Right. Yeah, so that becomes a barrier. It's a financial barrier. Um, and, and I remember like one of the students, they, they were in really a weird predicament because they wanted to study, but they didn't have access to books, so they kept borrowing from other people and photocopying. And, you know, it's just the, the, the playing field should be more level or the schools mm-hmm. should take that into account. Yeah, I think that's really a good point. Like, I know a lot of people, especially with the books, people really struggle to pay for that, but it's something that everyone needs to even just be able to study the basic material in the class. So uh, how do you think that, like, this representation in STEM and even in business can be increased? Increased, you said, or improved? Which one? Increased. Yeah, it definitely can be increased. The other thing is that when it comes to minority STEM students, they're usually encouraged, and the only route they see is basically becoming a physician. And they don't really see anything beyond that because that's also not what really they're being told about. They're not being told about the other mm-hmm. paths they could potentially uh, have or even create, create their own lab, create their own uh, entities. That's generally because the it's not a, a bash against the teachers. The teachers just generally don't have experience in this, in this themselves uh, about actually creating their own scientific entities and then basically exploring things from there creating service-based entities. I mean, there are people that I have met in the scientific realm who are not scientists at all, but make a major bank because they have scientists working for them. (laughs) In my opinion, I think we should have that the other way around, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's really interesting how you mentioned that, like, a lot of people, they really only see one path that they have, like, in their future. So what, like, what advice would you give to someone who's maybe wanting to carve out their own path, but they don't really know how to go about it? Well, one thing that should be done is that we should be encouraging our youth, especially those that are in the early stages of pre-med or those that are in early stages of master's and medical science program or master's programs, or even those in the early PhDs, uh, so like during summer cycle or any time that they have a little bit of downtime, maybe doing going off and producing their own companies and you know, go ahead and try and fail. You don't know which one can succeed and they might be the next big thing. But mm-hmm. at this point, what we should do is create an entrepreneur, a scientific entrepreneurial structure that encourages innovation, that encourages them to go and explore new areas and fields. And also, if they make discoveries, encouraging them to develop the IP. Because it doesn't matter if you go ahead and you get a, a patent through your school because there's a tech, tech transfer office, if no one's going to do any, not do anything with your patent. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The patent is only as useful as the products and services it can deliver. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that I had to learn practically in the field, and now I'm being called back to do talks and lectures on it and speak to students on. But the thing is that this should not be a one-off. We exactly. should be having thousands of me, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that definitely makes sense and is really helpful to hear. So, like, for you specifically, you started with more of, like, a traditional background, getting a master's in science and stuff. So what, like, what really made you take the leap to start this business? Like, what pushed you to do that? It was actually at Yale University. It was my, it was my, um, 
my fourth time going there. That I met a guy from Beverly Hills, uh, California. I was approached by two pharmaceutical companies about our discovery, and I basically told them no because they didn't get what I was trying to do because it, the discovery as it is focuses on the whole natural kale. And mm -hmm. they were interested in basically creating blocking rights and stuff. And I said, we need to focus more on sharing this with more scientists around the world so they can rip my idea apart. I want people to poke holes through our work because that's the only way we can actually start to improve the design, improve right. our methodology, and improve the work overall to help humanity, right? Yeah. At least I thought that was how people should function. <laughs> anyway, after that, um, this guy from Beverly Hills came up. He said, I heard your talk. He said, I, because at that point, Seth Godin also was there, and he talked about me in front of the entire huge uh, audience. And he said, you know, you're on to something huge. And he said, you better create your own company and basically start to develop some products on it. And I looked at him like, what are you, crazy, man? <laughs> like, I don't know how to make my own company. Because again, I told you, scientists, we're not trained that way. We're not taught to yeah. think in that manner. So I took on the challenge and figured out how to create my first LLC, which was Kizzleblash LLC, which, by the way, doesn't exist anymore. So I can <laughs> give you a whole lecture on failing. But... <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I had to go and create my first LLC. I mean, I'll never forget the day I created it. I had a celebratory dinner with all my friends, and the next morning I had a midlife crisis at 25. And <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do with my life because I was like, oh my God, I created this company. Now what do I do with it? <laughs> so yeah, talk about embarrassing. But I mean, that's also the sign of a true entrepreneur. They'll be able to tell you the truth about what happened. Everyone's like, oh yeah, I was, you know, I was an overnight success. Let me tell you, it takes many years to become an overnight success. Right. <laughs> I'm also a failed comedian, so don't mind that. <laughs> no, I think that's really like cool to hear, like just how talking to someone and making a connection can like really push you to just change your whole career and life's path. And I think that's really that's really inspiring for a lot of like young people to hear, especially. So do you have yeah, any... Yeah, well, actually, to be completely honest with you, when I was at Yale, I had several physicians and um, doctors who, or professors, they came up to me and told me, they said, Bilal, you didn't even complete your Master of Science uh, degree, <laughs> and you, you're talking to over 500 plus physicians, and they're all listening to you. So they said that maybe reconsider the, the route you're taking, because I was on route to becoming a physician at that point. Mm -hmm. And they told me, just think about the discovery you have and how much more good you can do by having a company and then hiring others to do the work, and you can basically run and control the entity. So the reason why they suggested that is because they told me the nature of the discovery we have and the fact that I stood my ground and resisted um, larger entities, they said that not everyone would do something like that. So mm -hmm. they said, rather, you control the entity and then you can hire those who align with that for humanity versus just giving control over to someone else and being a worker. Yeah, I think that's really important. Like, did you did you feel any, like, societal or maybe cultural pressure to just, like, stick on your path and just, you know, do the route and become a physician and just kind of leave this? Well, yeah, especially being busy, uh, the familial pressure is tremendous <laughs> there because at first they didn't understand what the heck I'm doing. So at first they're just like, what are you doing? Stick to the known route. They're like, uh, how are we ever going to get you married? And you know, <laughs> all, all of those things. And um, now that they're finally starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel and they're like, oh, okay. I mean, even my own fellow uh, classmates and stuff were like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and then all of a sudden now there's talk about the equity stake I had in the 
company and what it could potentially be worth. And they're like, damn. So in their minds, even though they went to medical school, they graduated and they graduated with a huge mountain of student debt. But aside from that, aside from the student debt element aspect, because even I have that, um, they, they earned a certain income over a period of time which was much higher than what I was earning at that time. But now it's starting to twist around. The key thing there is that small, consistent actions over time build up to large results. Mm -hmm. And most people don't see that, especially in the cultural community. Yeah, I think that's really important. And so finally, do you have any advice for any students who are looking to start their own business or, yeah, who, who are looking to start their own business? Yeah, I would tell them just do it. Um, do it. The cost to create your own LLC, for example, in Mississippi is not very high. In many states, it's not very expensive either. And for them to take the personal challenge and navigate the paperwork, which usually isn't that complicated, it's tremendously rewarding in and of itself. And you, not, next, you, you never know, for example, the next pre-med student who creates um, some kind of analytical lab and basically create a function as a broker between the two individuals and earns a ton of money and to go to medical school, do the traditional route, but they don't have to be in debt. Mm-hmm. Why do we have the model of the debt-based system as our gold standard? It needs to change. Right. I think that's really important. So do you have any like concluding remarks or anything that you like wanted to say but didn't really get a chance to say? I would just recommend everyone to do what they love and for them to find that inherent passion. So if your passion is with medicine, do it, innovate in it, become one of the leaders and thought leaders in that sphere. If it isn't, do think about this hard and early and basically navigate to where your, your talents can be best used. And don't be afraid of entrepreneurship. I mean, go out there, fail. We are classically trained to be afraid of failure, but in reality, mm-hmm. failure is our biggest building block, and that will give us our own PhDs in life. Yeah, I think that's really good advice to give. So, yeah, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much for talking with me. Of course, you're a friend now, so keep in touch. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening and make sure to come back next time. Bye.